Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. It's taken a while, but welcome dear listener to the Some Other Sphere Christmas special. My guest is paranormal researcher Matt Hopewell, aka AP Strange, who returned for his third visit to Sphere HQ. In the interview, we discuss a range of Yuletide topics, some that have a familiar association with the festive season, such as Santa Claus, and others that don't at first glance. For example, vampires. Matt recommends some of his favourite Christmas movies, educates us with an interesting seasonal factoid, and relates some of his ideas about the secret occult meaning in certain TV holiday specials. Jolly stuff indeed. Enjoy! Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Rick. Ho, ho, ho. Happy to be here. (laughs) With the podcast, I haven't done a a Christmas episode yet, so I think you're the perfect person to have on. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I do try to have the Christmas spirit, and um, I think that that we there's plenty of weirdness around the Christmas season that we can get into. That'll be a lot of fun for people to listen to. Definitely. I got very excited about the prospect of doing this as soon as I started turning ideas over in my head. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, same here, and and that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, like you say, there's actually loads and loads of weird fortune phenomena around this time of year. Well, yeah, and especially in your your corner of the world, um, telling ghost stories is it had long been a tradition on Christmas, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, especially Mr. James, his stories. Right. Uh, they would do like a short, sort of twenty-five, thirty-minute film of an Mr. James story and show them at Christmas. Uh, Whistle and I'll come to you is probably the the best known, but they're all great. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of BBC productions of that, right? And you could probably find them on streaming pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. They don't do them so much now. They have started to do them again, but they they haven't been as good as those ones from the, you know, from the 70s. Those were just there's something very much something very eerie about them. The way they were made, the the music they use, um the setting, everything is was really good. Yeah. I mean, um we don't get so much of that on this side of the pond, but you know, a Christmas carol is the classic and that's kind of got that as well. I mean, he's just being visited by ghosts all night, so um I think people time traveling ghosts, some of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Which is cool. <laughs> so uh, it's a very cool concept. Um but uh yeah, and I mean, I think people discount that. They grow up watching A Christmas Carol and they don't think of kind of how spooky it is unless they really kind of think about it, you know. Um, but I think in recent years, there's been a lot more, uh, maybe it's a pushback against the commercial, uh, what people view as a kind of a in- disingenuous Christmas cheer uh, commercialism and driving people out to buy gifts, that there's been a lot more like darker uh, interpretations of Christmas that have become popular. Uh, like I never used to really hear about people talk about Krampus. It should be noted we're recording this on Krampusnacht. Indeed. Uh, but Krampus has, has become, you know, it, it seems like podcasts and uh, writers of the weird variety and folklorists have dug up Krampus in the last like 10, 20 years, a lot more than I ever saw when I was younger. You know, even with there was that horror movie that came out a couple of years ago with uh with him Mm. so um i didn't really want to cover krampus very much but it's just kind of an example that and like horror movies uh around christmas time i think um and and kind of you know the online meme of die hard is a christmas movie you know it's like i feel like people are kind of losing their way with the christmas weirdness and i'm gonna try to i'm gonna try to direct people towards the uh more wholesome weird (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> i've got a, i've got a bunch of examples of that and then we'll get back into some more scarier stuff so i don't know where you wanted to start we got we got ufos um well ufos is probably going to be the bulk of it but we've got some we, we've got some other stuff as well well sure what wherever you'd like to start man it's um 
up to you. Well, I know uh, talking talking to you prior to the show, um, you had mentioned what was it a recent Forty and Times article about the Star of Bethlehem. It was quite. Um, it's an older one. It's um, I, I recently was going through my old um, back issues of Forty and Times, and I, I saw that story. It sort of included the Star of Bethlehem, but it was is mainly sort of to do with biblical references to phenomena that could be perhaps UFOs. Uh, yeah, I mean, and that's an idea that's been around for quite a while, and certainly popular with like ancient ancient astronaut theorists of all stripes. Um, I have a book uh, by Brinsley Lepore Trench uh, that that's got a bunch of uh, pictures of Bible scenes with like flying saucers added to them. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty hilarious to see, but, <laughs> but there is that idea that the star of Bethlehem, the way it's described and how it appears to move in the, um, in the Bible, people have, have ascribed that to a UFO. And then sometimes people extrapolate further that perhaps Jesus was a alien human hybrid or just an alien, you know, which is a crazy funny concept um, because I've seen people seemingly seemingly take that face value and it blows their mind. And I'm just, yeah, I'm just a little perplexed by it because it seems, uh, uh, I don't know. It seems a little like it's tied in with the whole star seed and ascended masters uh, kind of uh, like new age and UFO confluence that borders on a lot of dangerous territory that I'd rather not touch. You know, <laughs> yeah, definitely. It does seem that way, doesn't it? Um, like Jesus being an alien should be fun, and it is. But like you say, it's put in this sort of larger context of some stuff, which is not the nicest kind of thing. I don't think. <laughs> right. Like I have the um, the book by Tuella. That's the Project World Evacuation. Uh, Ashtar Galactic Command was supposed to come pick people up and save them just as the world was ending, you know, but only the true believers and the people that talk to Ashtar. And, you know, it has an introduction in the book from Jesus Sananda. That's like the uh, ascended master version of Jesus. That's on a spaceship with the Ashtar galactic command (laughs) at the beginning of it. And I'm like, wow, not too many books have a foreword by Jesus himself. This is pretty great. You know, (laughs) but you're talking about wacky, like pretty much death cult, kind of people you know so this is less funny in that context but yeah yeah absolutely i mean his um... so um sorry go ahead oh i I was just gonna say i was gonna try to steer away from that stuff because i have some some much sillier like safer stuff to get into (laughs) yeah let's let's do that (laughs) yeah um so uh, one thing that that i thought of that I've, i've talked about in the past is uh we go back to 1965. I sent you the, uh, the audio of this from a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the, the, uh, the Gemini mission with, uh, Wally, Sh- Wally Shira and Tom Stafford were the two astronauts that basically reported back the, uh, it's great in the audio because it sounds like they're reporting a UFO upon reentry going back to earth they're um they're they're saying oh we have an object it appears to be moving uh north to south and and then they're like i'm going to try to key in on it a bit and they had actually smuggled a harmonica and some jingle bells onto the onto the um craft and they played jingle bells so it was kind of just a joke like oh we just saw santa claus there he is you know and um that was actually the first musical performance in space that was transmitted back to earth on the Gemini 6A mission. So um, it's kind of funny because it, it, it gets you thinking about Santa Claus and UFOs kind of in the, in the same kind of uh, creative or popular imagination sort of deal, right? Cause you have something in the sky uh, that's unidentified or mysterious or magical, you know? So um, it was kind of a funny thing to me because this this goes further and deeper later on. You had a woman named Donna Hare that was claiming to be a whistleblower within NASA, 
later on in the 80s and stuff that was talking about um, how Santa Claus was actually a code word NASA used for UFOs. So, <laughs> so not only the Gemini 6 mission, but later on in 1968, the Apollo 8 mission with, um, with Jim Lovell and, uh, oh, geez, I didn't write down the other astronauts that were on board, but they, they, um, they circled the moon on Christmas Eve and they had a very, uh, very famous transmission back to earth where they read basically the, the beginning of Genesis from the Bible. And then uh, on the way back in, they said, there is a Santa Claus, you know. Um, so she takes that as evidence that they actually saw a UFO on their way back to Earth. And, <laughs> and but, but NASA instructed them to use the term Santa Claus if they see a UFO. So Santa Claus and UFOs have been kind of tied together in at least the ufology conspiracy mind, at least as far back as... as um, well, the 80s and 1965, if if you were to take Wally Shira and Tom Stafford's little stunt as anything more than just a little prank. Roger, Houston and Jiminy 7, this is Jiminy 6. Uh, we have an object, looks like a satellite, uh, going from north to south, probably in a polar orbit. Uh, he's in a very low trajectory, traveling from north to south. Uh, has a very high finest ratio. Looks like it might even be a uh, a bonus thing. Very low. Looks like maybe going to the energy soon. Uh, stand by one. Not, looks like he's trying to stick with him. Is a fun clip. I like you say. When, when I was listening to it, I thought this sounds weird. Like this is a, are they reporting some sort of encounter? And then you hear the music and like, oh, okay, I get it now. But it's it's very it's, it's very charming. <laughs> they play it off very deadpan, and then you can hear yeah. the mission control people being like, "Up, oh, you got me six, like <laughs> <laughs> like classic six. <laughs> Tricked us into thinking you saw a UFO, um, <laughs> but." But yeah, no, it's kind of funny to me that that there is this, you know, repeated thing down through the years. And you still, if you Google Santa Claus code name, the the results you're going to get back are like, is Santa Claus a NASA code name for a UFO? And um, if you do any work at all, you can find that this all comes from this one woman that that, that was a uh, tried to be like a whistleblower to say like NASA knows the truth about aliens. And they, you know, they're on the moon. <laughs> it all comes from this one source, and um, and and it's pretty easily debunkable because in the three cases that they're able to cite, uh, it's pretty obviously the the astronauts being a little bit glib and having a little bit of fun, you know. Hmm. So, I guess uh, some people are unaccustomed to government people having, you know, or like uh, you know, astronauts or armed forces or whatever having a sense of humor, but they do too you know <laughs> yeah yeah definitely so that that kind of was a jumping off point for me um the other thing actually i had already been thinking about this the santa and ufos for quite a while because um a while back i guess i tried to check um when i was talking with the people involved but within a couple days of each other i had two separate UFO type encounters told to me anecdotally that it both occurred on Christmas Eve. So it, it kind of got me thinking in this idea that like all the kids that are going to bed on Christmas Eve are expecting, uh, expecting a visitor from the skies, right? That's, that's, that's what they're dreaming about. So that, that energy and that those wishes and hopes are going out into the ether in the form of um, something coming down from the skies. And I wonder if maybe um, when you're a parent, I know this now as a parent and being older, uh, the Christmas season is less about 
the magic of hoping that uh, that a jolly old elf will visit your house and more about the fact that um, you got to scramble around and you have to get to the in-laws and you have to get to this place and you got to make sure all your kids gifts are there and you have them separated out so that some are from Santa, you know, <laughs> so the stress <laughs> and anxiety in the adult world, maybe if, if, um, if you were to take the idea of UFOs as being like a psychic projection, almost, it's almost like, uh, the childlike hopes that's that we will get a visitor from the skies tempered with the massive stress and anxiety in the adult world around that time of year. <laughs> um, maybe it kind of mutates it into something else uh just a little idea i started playing with as soon as i had this weird confluence of two christmas eve reports uh told to me back in july uh, just you know not even the right time of year for it so i don't know what you think about that yeah i mean i think that's a really interesting idea as well it's it's interesting that for parents i know there's this point where they sort of are supposed to tell their children that Santa's not real, or or culturally that that sort of moment exists. But when you when you're interested in the things that that we are, I mean, it's more interesting to think about well, how is Santa real? What what, what is Santa rather than whether he exists or not? And that's a good way to look at a lot of paranormal phenomena. It's not as interesting to sort of just question their existence or not, but but look at their nature. Yeah, because you get into the question of what is reality, right? So how do you define real versus unreal? And if something has an effect um, on your emotions and, and uh, your, your concept of, of, of what's real and tangible and important around you, then that, that constitutes a form of reality itself, whether or not it's physically real, right? Mm, Absolutely. So we think of a lot, we think of a lot of 14 phenomena this way and, I mean, Santa is described as like a jolly old elf or uh, he has all these fae-like attributes to him. He has a workshop full of elves. So you have that kind of fairy lore aspect to him as well. Yeah, yeah. And you leave um, gifts for him of food and alcohol. And he leaves gifts for you. So there's that gifting aspect already going on. And then coming down the chimney and into the fireplace, that that's kind of like this traditionally always been a very liminal place like the fire the hearth you know the fireplace um like again i know i know in england like witch bottles were a thing they would put in the hearth right yeah Uh, something to ward off uh evil things from coming down the chimney to get to them so yeah i don't know you have all this overlap with with uh fairies and that kind of thing um and uh, you know that's obviously been talked about for for decades and decades the confluence between fairies and and uh ufos and aliens so it's almost no wonder that you would see some of these things happening around this time of year Mm, definitely so the reports you were mentioned a little while ago that you were told what sort of sightings were they Right. So, I mean, it was kind of strange. I, I was talking with uh, Rob Christofferson of the Our Strange Skies podcast, mm-hmm. and he was kind of debating about um, doing an episode with his own personal experiences, which since he has done, since he, since we had this conversation, so this is all on his show already. But he had this uh, bedroom visitation on Christmas Eve that he described as being kind of like a garden gnome in appearance you know so he, he had gotten up at about 10 30 p.m on christmas eve after he had already gone to bed to use the bathroom and come back and then he had you know um the nighttime visitation and described it as looking like a garden gnome w- within a few days i was talking to levi athens on his youtube podcast show uh appalachian oddity and kind of unprompted he it, we organically in our discussion he he started talking about a a christmas eve that he was driving with his family and they saw three red lights kind of hovering and moving around in a weird formation in the west virginia mountains on the way back from a family party and they figured it was like some kind of structure on the mountain that they'd never noticed before and on the way back they didn't see him there so it was kind of the strange thing that he um that stuck with him forever and while he was telling me this, it was like, you know, the day after Rob 
randomly told me his story and uh it, it just kind of seemed like an odd odd synchronicity for the middle of summer to get two separate christmas eve kind of ufo adjacent stories you know <laughs> definitely yeah that one with the gnome is is very odd <laughs> yeah it is odd and um to make odd even odder just as as recently as last night i i stumbled upon a whole a, a whole list of uh reported encounters with santa claus <laughs> so this is great because it's a 14 subject that um that i guess nobody would really want to take seriously i mean people have trouble reporting ufos or sasquatch and that's something that's already kind of in the public imagination but i came across um well uh jeremy puma from luminal earth sent me a couple links which led me to this guy steven wagner who collected a ton of of uh of of accounts from people who were children at the time most of them who reported seeing at, like an actual santa claus you know and they're talking about seeing them like in their uh living room or seeing the sleigh on the roof. And in one case here, I even have one that left physical evidence behind because the, the tracks from the sleigh were still on the roof the next day. So, right. Wow. Um, it's, uh, you, you know, cause the, and this is what I love about Fortiana and this weirdness is that you can think of like kind of the craziest sounding thing you've ever heard. And, and, uh, just say it jokingly. And then somebody will have experienced that. And, or at least claim to. <laughs> so it's out there, you know? And then, you, like you said, you have to kind of consider, well, why not? Why couldn't Santa Claus have some kind of reality if all these other things do, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, like we were talking about before, it's it's more interesting to sort of investigate that than be too skeptical about it or, wor- or worry about the sort of the approaching it from a sort of a materialist angle and trying to break down what the phenomenon is it's it's too weird to be put under that sort of analysis i think yeah i mean if you had approached me 10 15 years ago and talked about fairies i probably would have laughed you know but there are a lot of weird (laughs) like 14 accounts of um what's that one in 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 england with like the gnomes and riding around in little cars oh yeah that's in woolerton park that's not too far from here actually in nottingham oh nice <laughs> yeah that's i love that one that's that's so no oh, it's just it's very odd <laughs> it's such a great story and it, um but you know that is it's in there it's in the 14 literature and, and you realize that a lot of researchers are taking this seriously in the past so once you accept fairies it's like um well where else can you go from there <laughs> like you can either just is that the line in the sand is fairies because <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine uh, uh, some people going, well, gnomes I can handle, but gnomes in driving little cars is just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bridge too far, my friend. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the line in the sand, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's very funny. So uh, in that spirit, because uh, th- there are plenty of, of things you could really get into here. It's a few notable uh, UFO stories that everybody's well familiar with by this point that uh involve christmas time are of course like uh the whitley streber initial uh abduction visit that kind of precipitated the the events of communion was right around christmas time i think it might have been the day after christmas um Mm. he and his family were at that cabin in new york um so it's kind of interesting to think of you know whitley streber's big experience right around that time there's also the Silver Bridge collapse, which didn't happen right on Christmas, but Christmas was a notable part of that story because a lot of people were returning from Christmas shopping in um, Point Pleasant when that bridge collapsed. And that was kind of, you know, a significant, a significant event with the Mothman phenomena at that time. And then, of course, Rendlesham Forest and the events that happened there was right around Christmas time as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So those are three pretty big UFO, um, you know, events. Uh, I mean, people don't necessarily think of Mothman as being a UFO story, but there's a lot of UFO stuff there. But three fourteen events anyway, that sent, where Christmas is a central 
um, piece of the puzzle. And I didn't, I didn't want to get into any of those too deeply, but it's, it's interesting to consider that, that those three things all had, um, all had that one time of year in common, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm interested in the connection with uh, around that time of year. It's that point when the days are shortest and the nights are at their, at their longest. And it's just before that point where that changes. So I think it's December 21st or something around then. And I find that interesting. Like from that point onwards, uh, the days get longer, but around this time, the, the nights are pretty long. And I always feel like they talk about Halloween as this point when the veil between our, our reality and another one is thin. But I think it gets thinner right up until Christmas time. Christmas time is when it's at, when it's at its thinnest. If it to, to use that analogy, yeah, and um, in some places around the world, that was you know you'd light candles in the windows to to help uh, you know spirits of ancestors find their way back for for Christmas and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think from a psychological and evolutionary perspective, when da- when darkness is predominant and that's more common than light at that time of year, I think things seem scarier anyway, right? So um, uh, it is it's it's a weird it's a weird and kind of spooky time, and and the veil does thin out, and it seems to kind of brighten up after Christmas, which I guess is the whole idea of like the twelve days of Christmas after afterwards heading towards epiphany is that um things just become brighter and brighter and more illuminated and it's the life coming back you know yeah yeah definitely because i mean historically speaking we don't know that jesus was born on december 25th and in fact probably wasn't you know (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of co-opted pagan uh celebrations that are you know the birth of uh, the rebirth of the sun and the and the end the coming of life and all that other stuff so it's it's all you know the yule log the tree all of it's just uh remnants from old pagan celebrations yeah yeah the tree in the house is a like a kind of sympathetic magic yeah it goes all the way back to ancient rome with like saturnalia and stuff like that as well so Mm, mm, definitely i think i got that right Uh, yeah (laughs) um Um, go ahead yeah no i didn't really have anything further to say but uh, (laughs) I was just going to mention when you email me about what you were um, looking to talk about, there's a, a contactee called Book Nelson, and I found his story really interesting and fun. <laughs> yeah, Buck Nelson, I think, is one of my favorite contactees. And um, and it, he's, you, you know, it, you pro- people might have seen a picture of him online before holding up a sign that says... Um, uh, well, something about flying saucers, like flying saucer convention, but the S is backwards on the sign. Um, All right. He always wore like overalls and like a plain T-shirt. And, uh, you know, he was he was like a farm boy. Like he always wanted to be kind of a simple man of the land living in the Ozarks. And he didn't want to present himself any other way, you know? Yeah, yeah. I've got my copy of A for Adamski here. And there's a picture of him with uh, Truman Bathroom. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he made the rounds and he did the circuit. Uh, in 1954, he made contact with um, with flying saucers and had one land in his yard. And um, it's it, 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 it's one of the wackier contactee stories because I think he had three occupants on board, and one of them was an actual guy from Venus named Bob Solomon that didn't do very much of the talking. <laughs> but yeah, Bob Solomon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but a, um, a good venusian name i guess <laughs> yeah that's that name has its roots in venus and uh, um the the other guy the guy that did most of the talking to buck was a spaceman named bucky so uh there's a real shortage of names in the storytelling <laughs> but, but bucky as it happens is actually an Earthman who was taken when he was 17 years old from his home in colorado and brought to venus um for the express purpose of teaching venusians to speak english right so he was there for for educational diplomatic purposes um and and bucky is is the one that does most of the talking with buck and they have a big dog as well so you have a you have a space dog in the story named bo 
who they, I think weighed close to 400 pounds. They give his actual weight in the book for some reason, but he's a very, very large dog that that lived in, <laughs> I guess, was born on Venus. So, um, so Buck's book was called My Trip to Mars, the Moon, and Venus. Uh, he hopped aboard the Flying Saucer and went out to all these places in that order. And um, what can, what I what I wanted to bring up here is it's almost like an epilogue to his story is after he had returned and after he had gained some notoriety as a contactee, um, uh, Bucky had come back to visit him for Christmas in 1955 and allegedly recorded a tape. There should, there's supposed to be a tape recording somewhere of, um, of uh, Bucky giving his message to the people of Earth, which is kind of funny because he's also an Earthling. He's just kind of, he's an expat Earthling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh um so on christmas 1955 i guess bucky arrived on christmas eve and then spent the entire like 22 and a half hours there all through christmas day and he had to leave because he was going to go visit his family in colorado before he headed back to venus um and you know his message to earthlings that he recorded on the tape was pretty much what you might expect from somebody influenced by uh, Venusian ideology, which was to abandon warfare and atomic weapons, because that that's no good. And he wished us all peace on Earth. And uh, the other funny thing about this to me, and the notable part of it is that the woman who had helped Buck to write his book and get it out there, um, and was a friend of his and stayed with him in his home in the Ozarks, uh, Fanny Lowry had sent a letter to Bucky care of Buck um, with a card in it that, that was an advertisement for, I think it was uh, an advertisement for, for a certain type of oil or oil filter. And uh, the card had, uh, had on the front, like a yellow car with a bunch of monkeys on it, just messing it up and doing all kinds of stuff to it. And it says, don't, don't let a, just anyone monkey around with your car. And uh, she had handwritten on it, does anyone monkey around saucers like this? And apparently Bucky found that very funny and had a good laugh over it and said that, yes, people do pick saucers apart for souvenirs when they crash. And um, he ended up keeping the card as the first gift uh, knowingly sent to someone from Earth to another person on another planet. So (laughs) it's a historical landmark. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the silly little monkey card advertisement was the first gift given to someone on another planet knowingly from an earthling. Sounds good. I'd like to get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like these firsts. I'm good at finding historic firsts. If I can. <laughs> Didn't he get given some commandments as well from the aliens that he met? Well, the expat human. Yeah. Um, well, right. So the, in order to live among the Venusians, and I, th- I guess the reason that most people don't get contacted is you need to abide by by these, I think it's like 12 separate commandments. So like two more than the 10 that you'd find in the Bible, but they're very similar to the ones that are in the Bible. And uh, um, the Venusians do have a very kind of Christian uh, appearance, outward appearance to their ideology anyway. So, um, yeah, there was a whole list of commandments that, that you're required to memorize if you're going to travel with, um, with, uh, aboard one of their crafts. And, um, and, uh, Buck Nelson was actually also allowed to drive the flying saucer, which must've been fun for him. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and he also threatened MIB that showed up at his house with a, with a shotgun. So you know, props to Buck for that. <laughs> yeah, he's a very entertaining contactee, and uh, and it, it's is a great example of one of those stories that seems almost too crazy for somebody to have made up. You know, I I agree. I mean, it, it's the case with a lot of these contactee reports. Is it feels like something did happen, and but what? I it's it's hard to to sort of pin down. I find. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would think if you were going to tell a lie, you would keep it as simple as possible. 
know, not invent a story about a shaggy dog that weighs 365 pounds or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I with some of the contactee experiences, I, I get the sense that maybe it was like a, some sort of government agency messing with people for some reason. Yeah. I mean, the or- Orfeo Angelucci story sounds like that to me. But Yeah, yeah. But with this one, I, I don't really see that angle. Maybe it's just something, maybe he's an imaginative guy. And I, I, in my interview with John Higgs, who wrote a book about William Blake, William Blake had a very active imagination and would, you know, have an argument with a thistle um, because it was he saw as a, as, a, as a hectoring old man. And it seems like maybe... It, that's what's happening here. Someone's someone's imagination is is very active, and it's not not happening. It's but it's it's sort of understanding how it's happening. It's it, it, if, you, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean he probably had a lot of time to to think and imagine these things out in the mountains by himself. I mean, I don't think he was in the most remote place, but he wasn't um, didn't have close neighbors or anything, and I'm pretty sure he lived alone too. So. I guess uh, there's a lot to spark the imagination out that way. Yeah, I imagine there must be plenty of folklore there too. I mean, maybe it's an something an evolved version of that. Just something that's a traditional sort of entity that's known to the people of the area that's wearing new clothes, got a fancy new spacecraft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um but also, Bucky and Buck were related. I don't know if I mentioned that. They found out at some point that they were distant cousins or something like that. So um, that's that's very interesting. So it was like a family reunion for Christmas, just uh, an interplanetary family reunion. Oh, sounds, <laughs> sounds nice. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, well, while we're on firsts, since I I know that you're a you're a Tom Lehrer fan. I had a, a oddball Tom Lehrer factoid for you. I've been waiting to hear this. I'm... <laughs> well, I'm going to be disappointed if you already knew this because it might be something you already knew. But um, for anyone listening, not knowing not, who doesn't know who Tom Lehrer was, he was he was a um, a, a musician that wrote a lot of kind of like satirical tunes. He's known for upbeat tunes like "Poisoning Pigeons in the Park." And uh, <laughs> kind of a really, a really brilliant guy, uh, piano player and singer, and just had a really great sense of humor. But we have uh, we're moving one year forward from from Bucky and Buck in 1955 to Christmas 1956 at a naval base in Washington. Um, Tom Lehrer is invited to a party, and the it's the the party is a dry party they're not allowing any alcoholic beverages there so um what he does is he concocts a bunch of different versions of alcohol in jello and essentially invents the jello shot um right (laughs) so is that something you do already no no absolutely not but that's brilliant (laughs) i love it (laughs) it's such a weird thing that when i came across this little factoid i'm like i have to check into that so i read a couple different sources and it seems like um he brushes off having actually invented the jello shot uh and he never called it that but uh it was kind of one of those things that you know uh the mother of invention is necessity uh (laughs) And Tom Lehrer really needed a drink at this party. So um, he got around the rule of no alcoholic beverages by putting the alcohol in Jell-O. And then when the guard asked him what's in there, he just said Jell-O. Because Jell-O is not technically a beverage. It's, nope. a, it's a different form of <laughs> different form of alcohol consumption. And thus the Jell-O shot was born. And um, he tried a bunch of different versions. And what, what he came up with that worked best, I guess, was vodka and the orange mm. va- orange flavored jello so like a little screwdriver jello shot <laughs> like you say it's a, it's a great workaround to to get some booze at the party <laughs> it, it sure is and it's just kind of jello shots and tom lehrer aren't something i would have thought of in one sentence i always figured that was a much more recent invention <laughs> because you always just kind of think of weird you know clubs with um dance clubs or something like that where people are trying to pick up girls and that's where you'd find jello shots but 
Yeah, yeah. You, you do imagine it as a, a more modern invention, but I guess jello has been around a long time. I wonder if people did that before. Yeah, I mean, I looked into that too, and I guess gelatin desserts themselves go back to like 1865 or something like that. So uh, I don't know how long Jell-O as a company has been around, but um, I mean, certainly that's why Tom Lehrer, I think, brushes it off because he probably figured somebody else had thought of it before, but uh, he he independently came up with it on his own as a way of getting around no alcoholic beverages. So <laughs> fun little factoid. Nice, yeah, brilliant. I love it. <laughs> so um yeah, back onto the pop culture thing. I had a few recommendations for for Christmas media to consume. That's a little bit on the weirder end. Brilliant. Yeah. I think that would be good to talk about. A tradition in my house is every year we watch Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Okay. I hadn't I'd never heard of this film. I feel like that what happens is in the, is in the title, but <laughs> <laughs> it does seem that way, right? Uh, you get a picture of Santa Claus like kicking down some Martian doors and planting a North North Pole flag on on the planet, but <laughs> it's like it's an attempt at a Christmas movie. It was made in Mexico, and um, it, it's a it's it's an odd one because uh, the Martians actually abduct Santa Claus uh, because Martian children are getting becoming influenced you know they're supposed to be unemotional and logical and they're becoming influenced by uh, broadcasts from earth where they're they're learning about this uh, concept of christmas and santa claus but uh santa claus ends up conquering them basically spoiler alert with with uh love and christmas spirit so (laughs) um if you don't have the stomach for for cheesy media the way i do there is, of course, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of this. And um, I, f- I think most people would find that preferable. But it's the origin of uh, Crow T. Robot's Christmas song, Patrick Swayze Christmas. Okay. So, <laughs> a roadhouse, uh, roadhouse-themed uh, Christmas song. So <laughs> big part of the reason it's a uh, year-round annual tradition in my, my house. Um. Also, the Twilight Zone episode, Night of the Meek, should be noted, Rod Serling, the creator of the Twilight Zone, was actually born on Christmas Day. Hmm. So the, the, that's an interesting little thing, because the Twilight Zone, I'm sure, is very, for me, it was always very informative and, and influential to my way of thinking and how I view everything. But I, I know that's probably true for a lot of people. Um, the Night of the Meek is Art Carney as a drunken department store santa and it's pretty powerful i would i would recommend people look that up and and give that a watch cool yeah Uh, it's a it's not an episode i'm familiar with so i'll I'll definitely try and find that oh really uh very depressed and drunk art carney kind of discovers the meaning of christmas it's one of those uh twilight zone episodes with kind of a happy ending oh good it's (laughs) still uh supernatural you know (laughs) And then I got a, two different horror movie recommendations here because Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. Did you see this one? Yes. Yeah. I, I love that film. The very strange, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know that I want to say too, too much about it because it's kind of I think it's better if you go into it not really knowing what it's about. But it does kind of get into the Santa as wild man, uh, evil Santa kind of thing. Um, yeah. The yeah like you say i won't won't talk too much about what happens in it but there's there is a sort of a reveal in the film and i was sideswiped by that i thought this is brilliant and also there's a really funny funny running gag about a telephone but which i love i just uh, that that made me chuckle the first time i watched it where where are they going with this it's just (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean it was um made in finland i think right is it a finnish film yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So it's um, I believe subtitles. I think that when I saw it, I had subtitles, but I don't know if they have a dubbed version in English. But it's easy enough to find. I'm pretty sure it's still on a lot of streaming services. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and and then the last suggestion I have here is a uh, Christmas Evil. Have you ever heard of this one? No. <laughs> okay, this is <laughs> 1980s, uh, 1980s movie with a guy. Uh, the actor, the the main actor in this that ends up kind of going on a killing spree is um, 
actually i think he's fiona apple's father uh in in real life but the, the conceit of this movie is that he's um as a child caught his uh his mother and santa claus and i mean santa claus actually his dad dressed as santa claus having a having a little bit of a um well, you know, having a little bit of fun after the kids go to bed in the in the living room, and it kind of emotionally scars them for life. <laughs> and uh, he, there comes this one Christmas where he works in a toy factory, and he ends up just kind of snapping, and goes on an indiscriminate killing spree dressed as Santa Claus. Um, wow, <laughs> it's weird. It's a weird one. <laughs> uh, I think it's. I think John Waters has been quoted as saying it's his favorite Christmas movie. And he watches it every year, so that should tell you a lot about it. Uh, <laughs> and I'll have to look it up. Um, I'd never heard of that, but it sounds interesting. <laughs> it, took, it took me forever to remember the name of it. I was sitting there, and then I was like, all right, Christmas Evil. That makes so much sense. Um, how could I forget that name? Yeah, I hadn't even thought about it, but it just begs to be made, doesn't it? You would imagine, yeah. and, it, and it did. So, <laughs> and it did. I was, I was thinking Silent Night, Bloody Night, or Deadly Night, and I was like, no, that's not it. Like, that's a different movie, you know. That's a film too. Oh yeah, Silent Silent Night, Deadly, Deadly Night. I think there's a trilogy of those. Oh, okay. Um, I can't recommend those ones nearly as much. Uh, I don't think they're as good, but I don't know. There are they have their own cult following, but. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of uh, bizarre and weird and uh, and horror related Christmas contents out there for the people that are so inclined. It feels like you were, you were saying earlier. It's it sort of subverts the the traditional Christmas fair that, that most people will watch. You know. Yeah, and I, I think part of it, yeah, it, it, there is that subversion aspect, but part of it, I think, is also a commentary on like commercialism and. You know, people, people not really having um, the spirit of goodwill, goodwill towards men, uh, as much as you know, just trying to uh, make Christmas perfect for the kids and everybody, and, and satisfy everybody, and make sure that uh, you spend the right amount of money, and so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I suppose um, a lot of well-known Christmas films they have supernatural elements to them too, don't they? I mean, I guess they're bound to. Because given the nature of the season, but for instance, in 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 it's a wonderful life, are there are angels in that. Well, yeah, and it's pretty dark because at the beginning of the film, the man's about to commit suicide. You know, like yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other story. I mean, like um, the amount of old comedies that that as a as a uh, plot point have somebody about to jump off a bridge. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like how common was that back then? <laughs> And like, why, why is this in a comedy? Like, I think it happens in two different Laurel and Hardy shorts. Um, <laughs> like, geez, that's dark, you know? But um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, and I mean, all the kids ones too. I mean, uh, I had all my esoteric interpretations of, of Christmas specials that I ran last year and put on Twitter for funsies and people enjoyed those. But, um, you know, I had my more esoteric interpretations of like the Grinch being uh being the green man and it, like an like an elder chthonic deity that lives in a hole in the cave like, like a cave in, up in the mountain and um the reason he hates christmas so much is this powerful sorcerer named santa claus has made the who's forget about him you know <laughs> so i mean i kind of invented that as like a joke and and people people seem to like it some people were mad at me about it i guess but that was a fun little exercise last year i think that's a really interesting take on that character well you know i mean you just overlay some of the symbols and take them apart and uh, i mean that's the beauty of art and and of mythology and folklore is that you can kind of combine them all and um i like to do it with with my tongue firmly in my cheek but uh i've also discovered that sometimes just going for a joke leads you unintentionally to a profound result. <laughs> so, I mean, I did the same thing with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, that got a little a little convoluted, but uh, when when you see some of these um, some of these themes in the in the kids' Christmas specials, you know, I, I said like the ro- the red nose was 
uh, signified the rose on the rosy cross, you know, of Rosicrucianism, and that Hermie the elf was uh, the embodiment of Hermes Trimagestus of the Hermetic tradition, and he's he's trying to elevate himself out of Santa's workshop and become something more, you know. What is that from? Sorry, Hermie the elf. I'm not familiar with that character. Oh, do you not have Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer over there? No, we do. Um, I just, I, I know the, I know the song. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, there was a TV special that runs every year. It has run every year since like 1963 or something <laughs> in the states, and it's like a stop motion animation. So, right, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I, I really want to. Oh, okay, so that that would all be lost on you. But yeah, I mean, if you name a character Hermie, how am I not supposed to think of of the Hermie Trimagestus of the Hermetic tradition? You know. I'd be upset if you ha- if you didn't, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then you just got Yukon Cornelius, who's like a silver prospector. He's looking for silver and gold. So I made him kind of uh, out to be like an alchemist looking for the philosopher's stone. And then, of course, you have a, the Bumble in the uh, in the Christmas special is like the abominable snowman. So he's mm. a he's like a yeti, and that's. Um, that, that that to me symbolizes the animalistic bestial nature of man that we try to like hide from but it can be tamed you know so uh my my esoteric interpretations of those christmas uh, specials in a nutshell no yeah, they, they they're really interesting <laughs> yeah uh well let's see how much time do we have left we got like another 10 minutes or so okay cuz i did have one more thing i wanted to touch on having um I wanted to get as much varied weirdness in this episode as possible. Excellent. So, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I mentioned Rod Serling being born on Christmas Day. Also, uh, Robert Ripley of Ripley's Believe It or Not fame was born on Christmas Day, which to me is uh, is a very informative to my, to my worldview, um, just his books of factoids that you can choose to believe or not. And he said they were all true, but uh, yeah, I, ch- I chose not to believe him sometimes, but there was a lot of, um, I think a lot of 14s were kind of inspired by his books as well. Uh, I'm very suspicious of both of them though, because, uh, there, there is this, the suspicion in some parts of the world, namely like Greece and areas near Greece, I guess, that if you were born on Christmas or between Christmas and the epiphany, they were, you were considered what was what called feast blasted. Um, which means that after you die, you become a vampire. So this is something I stumbled across in the uh, Montague Summers book, Vampires and Vampirism. Uh, <laughs> so it seems kind of paradoxical, paradoxical to me. I don't know why when you're born during kind of like the holiest time of year, one would think um, that makes you an, an evil entity or imbues you with an evil spirit. But uh, I guess in some parts of the world that is that is a thing that if you were born on Christmas you become a vampire after death. So makes me wonder about Rod Serling. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> checked his crypt, but <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anybody born between those in those twelve days, you know. So <laughs> But it is it is interesting, isn't it? How did that law come about? What happened in order to, for that to, to become sort of a, a tradition, a folk tradition? Yeah, I really don't know. And it seems to be, I don't know um, if this is tied to like the Eastern Orthodox Church. I guess it would be if it was Greece. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if it goes back further than that. But yeah, this is what Montague Summers reports in his book. He also said that during life, they can become monsters called uh, Kalakantzaros. I think Calacanzaros. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but they're, um, I would have to describe them as being something close to like what people picture when they talk about a native American Wendigo. Um, their fingernails grow very long and turn into kind of claw like things and their head becomes bigger and more elongated and they just rip people apart in the woods. So, and I think it's during that time of year. So if you were visiting somebody for Christmas, going cross country and through the woods, um, you had to watch out 
for uh, any of the Calicanzaros that might be out that are just going to rip you apart with their elongated fingernails and then eat you, you know? <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah, terrifying. Yeah, and I mean, I guess this is, superstition was strong enough that that um, people born in that time would sometimes have have things done to their hands, like their hands burned so that their fingernails couldn't grow like that and they'd be unable to rip people apart which uh, uh, it sounds pretty gruesome to me. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I know that there is Wendigo psychosis, isn't there? I think they've established that that, happen- that can happen when people, for some reason, they there's a food supply that they could eat, but they choose to kill and eat people. I don't think it's, it's not very common, obviously, but there have been cases of people who have killed and eaten people. And Yeah, there's similar ailments that are often um, used to explain like cases of werewolves and things like that, you know? Um, But when you go back far enough with the folklore, there's, there's less and less dividing line between what constitutes like a vampire versus a werewolf or any of these other things. They all seem to have similar attributes, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just, I wonder if, you know, at winter time, there's less food around. Maybe in the past, there were more instances of, of those kinds of, crimes i guess those sorts of murders and something like that um but how would they ever figure out i mean records weren't as easily available once upon a time so how would they ever figure out they were all born that's a good that's a good point (laughs) yeah it just seems uh it seems really mean because i think it's i think it's crummy enough to have your birthday too close to christmas because then it's like you know you get short shrift with gifts because people are like wow christmas is coming so (laughs) I can't afford to buy you two gifts, so <laughs> yeah. I think that tends to happen with people people's birthdays. If they're too close to Christmas, they get a little bit overlooked, you know. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that is the case. But then, uh, you know, in addition to that, you get accused of becoming a monster that rips people apart, so you have to have your fingertips burnt. <laughs> poor, poor people. Yeah, it's not not fair, is it? I I would be I would be really isn't. seems a bit harsh, <laughs> but the premise for a great film. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's any Calicanzaros um, horror movies out there. I imagine there would be. Oh, I should have planned a little better and maybe not ended on people getting ripped apart by Calicanzaros at the end of the episode. We're gonna try, higher note, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um. I think uh, I, I think as we're winding down here, I think we can we can uh, very comfortably say that Santa Claus very well could be real. Yep, he might be he might be an alien. Um, there's plenty of great media out there for you to consume. Either way, uh, <laughs> watch out for Calicant Zaros. Uh, Rod Serling might be a vampire, <laughs> and. Uh, and vodka and orange jello are the best mix if you're going to make jello shots per tom lehrer so i think i think we've covered a good a good span of things here yeah i I think it's it's been very entertaining and we've you've given some some good advice as well for for the holiday season i think you've done great work there matt all right well thank you very much rick i really appreciate you having me on because this was a really fun fun subject to research and put together and i was really looking forward to it Uh, i'm glad we did this yeah, me too. Actually, there is one thing that I know you mentioned in your email that you wanted to talk about, and that was um, Quatria, because in the lore of Quatria, around this time of year, the monsters are on the loose. That's true. Yeah, the hypo- the hypogeum is open this time of year, um, because this is, uh, in Quatrian myth, uh, per Jeremy Puma from Luminal Earth and, and the other guys there that are into this stuff, uh, Tim Boucher, I believe you had them both on your podcast to talk about Quatrian Myth at one point, right? Yeah, it was a really interesting episode. I'm still sort of getting my head around it, <laughs> but I love talking about it. It's fascinating. If I'm being honest, so am I. But uh, the, this is um, this is the time of year where the Chthonic monsters are released and they run rampant on the world and it's up to Anthwar and the other uh, uh, master magicians to round up all of all of the monsters and drive them back underground. Um, 
while the monsters are here, they're breeding. So their progeny will still escape the master magicians, but um, the the major monsters get put away this time of year. And and um, so like during that time, it's it's kind of a liminal time while the hypogeum is open. In fact, I think if you go on the liminal Earth website, liminal dot Earth, the, there's instructions on how to celebrate while the hypo, hypogeum is open, and you can uh, do these meditative things where you can you, you can reveal insights about reality and stuff like that but uh during this time of year let's see i got a list of, of all the monsters here eight monsters and they all have names that are hard to pronounce but there's a frog there's a frog-headed monster of spite there's Dejer, the bird-headed monster of pollution Dejuet, the hair-headed monster of anxiety gnuth the sow-headed monster of stench Gnu, the wolf-headed monster of smoke. Uh, Keket, the serpent-headed monster of shame. And Wene, the hyena-headed monster of strife. And these are all... Oh, and then there's one more. Weiwu, the scorpion-headed monster of toil. So the magicians ride forth and capture them and bring them back, but the offspring are still here to kind of torment men until next year. But one of those master magicians is named Acker, and he's the gift-bringer. So that's kind of the Quatrian predecessor to Santa Claus. Right. Yeah. Cool. No, I love that. I, I've got, I've got the, um, the Oracle. I, I like using that and, uh, and the bit of lost direction as well. It's a great book. Oh, it's all fascinating stuff. So, um, definitely that's a good Christmas gift for people into weird stuff is the lost direction by Tim Bechet. Um, you can find that online somewhere. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah because if there was a advanced civilization on earth hundreds of thousands of years ago there won't be any evidence left probably or if it is somewhere it's probably at the bottom of the ocean or deep in the earth so i think what the liminal earth guys are doing with quatria is that you know it's a good story it's a good story anyway but it's also a brilliant thought experiment in terms of working out what that sort of civilization might be like to my mind anyway yeah no i like it uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of it all i was very perplexed by it at first and now i'm only slightly perplexed by it but it's a kind <laughs> of uh it's a kind of perplexed that allows you like you said as a, as a thought experiment to kind of work it out and work it roll it around in your head and see what you think you know so mm, absolutely what do we really know about ancient civilizations anyway so <laughs> yeah the more you find out, the less you know. In my experience, it's just—it's it's such a—it's a brilliant rabbit hole. I love it so much. Yep. But yeah, it's just—it's a never-ending rabbit hole. Keep going down and down, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Brilliant. Well, Matt, as ever, this has been a really fun conversation. I'm sorry it took so long to get you back on, but thank you for being a guest. Oh, I'm always happy to be here, Rick. Thank you for having me on, and Merry Christmas to you. Uh, yeah, you too. Merry Christmas. And if people want to find out more about you, how best do they do that? Well, you can go to uh, my my blog page, the www.apstrange.com, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm always on there. Uh, I, I check that every day, so that's, that's where I'm most active. Um, and I'm pretty sure if you just type AP Strange in the, in the search bar, you'll find me. So Excellent. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. All right. Beautiful. Brilliant. Well, thanks again, Matt, and Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right. Merry Christmas to you. I don't know why, but there's nothing quite like talking about Wendigo psychosis and cannibalism to get me in the festive spirit. Thank you so much for listening to the Some Other Sphere Christmas special. I think Matt was the perfect guest to have on for this seasonal episode. Definitely check out his blog and find him on Twitter if you haven't done so yet. Please also consider rating the podcast wherever you listen and sharing episodes on social media as it really helps it to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast by Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. 
especially if you have some feedback on an episode or have an idea for future subjects to cover. Until next time, be safe and well, and have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. Some Other Sphere will return in early 22 with a brand new episode. Now all that's left is to hand over to Tom Lehrer to sing us out with a festive song. One very familiar type of song is the Christmas Carol, although it is perhaps a bit out of season at this time. However, I am informed by my disc jockey friends, of whom I have none, that uh, in order to get a song popular by Christmas time, you have to start plugging it well in advance. So here goes. It's always seemed to me, after all, that Christmas, with its spirit of giving, offers us all a wonderful opportunity each year to reflect on what we all most sincerely and deeply believe in. I refer, of course, to money. <laughs> and yet, yet none of the Christmas carols that you hear on the radio or in the street even attempts to capture the true spirit of Christmas uh, as we celebrate it in the United States. That is to say, the commercial spirit. So I should like to offer the following Christmas carol for next year as being perhaps a bit more appropriate. Christmas time is here, by golly, disapproval would be folly. Deck the halls with hunks of holly, fill the cup and don't say when. Kill the turkeys, ducks, and chickens, mix the punch, drag out the dickens. Even though the prospect sickens, brother, here we go again. On Christmas Day, you can't get sore, your fellow man you must adore. There's time to rob him all the more, the other 306 a day of war. Relations sparing no expense, send some useless old utensil, or a matching pen and pencil, just the thing I need. How nice. It doesn't matter how sincere it is, nor how heartfelt the spirit. Sentiment will not endear it. What's important is the price. Mark the Herald Tribune sings, advertising wondrous things. God rest ye merry merchants, may ye make the Yuletide pay. Angels we have heard on high Tell us to go out and buy So let the raucous sleigh bells jingle Hail our dear old friend Kris Kringle Driving his reindeer across the sky Don't stand underneath when they fly by